0: Okay, so today we begin the journey through the book of Acts. This is our fall. Well, it's actually going to be our pretty much our whole school year series because it's a long book, uh, 28 chapters. We're gonna. It's gonna take us more than uh, one, you know, chapter per week to get through this. It's gonna be a while. So we're we're planning to have uh, our, our church in this book from now until basically the end of May. Uh, we'll take a break for Christmas and that kind of thing, like we usually do, but. But yeah, so about eight or nine months of, of Acts ahead of us. And I'm really looking forward to it because I think there's so much here that we we can learn from and, and grow in and, uh, and see how the Spirit of God is working, was working in those days as He does today. Um, so with, with all the books of the Bible that we start to preach through, and that's generally what we do here is we try to take a book of the Bible as much as possible and just go through it beginning from beginning to end, verse by verse, just walk through it. Uh, it's good for us to start with some introduction as we start a new book, so we understand what we're looking at. Like, what is this? And some of you may be very familiar with what Acts is about, and others of you may have no clue what Acts is about. So let's just get everybody on the same page, uh, do a little introduction. We're not going to go super heavy on any of that, but just want to give us some basic ideas of what, this, what we're dealing with. And then we'll start looking at uh, the text in, in particular. But let's read the first five verses of Acts because I think these, these really do serve as the, the natural introduction to the book. And they give us a lot of information uh, about what we're looking at. So it says this, In the first book, O Theophilus, I've dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So these first five verses really tell us a lot about what we're looking at in Acts. Uh, The first is that we see that this is uh, apparently a second book written by somebody because he says, in the first book. So he's referring to, in the first verse, he's referring to what he wrote in the first book. Now, the name of the person writing these words is not mentioned What is mentioned is the the name of the person he's writing this book to or dedicating it to, a man he calls O Theophilus. And that gives us some information, okay? What that tells us is that the writer of Acts is the same writer as the gospel of Luke because Luke begins in uh, chapter one, one to four. He says, uh, he explains what he's doing with Luke and he says, inasmuch as, Uh, Many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us. It seemed good to me also, having followed all these things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, O most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. So Gospel of Luke dedicated to this guy named Theophilus. We can call him Theo if we want to, because he's dead and can't object. And so you got Theo, he's getting his his gospel of Luke. So Luke wrote Luke. That's not a a complicated issue. So we also know that Luke wrote Acts, because he's writing this book as basically a follow-up to what he began to explain about Jesus through the gospel of Luke. Luke's introduction in that gospel account is that he's, Putting together all of these eyewitness accounts, he's he's compiling an orderly account, he says, of the life and ministry, death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And he's doing that for this guy he calls Most Excellent Theophilus, so that this guy, Theo, has certainty about the things he's been taught. So we don't know much about this Theophilus guy, to be honest. We know he's referred to as Most Excellent in Luke. And he's referred to as O Theophilus in Acts, which means that the the pomp around that is probably telling us that Theophilus is more than likely a member of the nobility in Rome, more than likely somebody of of position and power and, and almost certainly wealth. And there are speculations beyond that, right? It's all just guesswork after this. Uh, But some people think that Theophilus may have actually paid for Luke to go and and talk to all the eyewitnesses and compile this, and Luke probably had some kind of assistance from him. Um, And maybe, maybe not, right? We don't know. And none of that really matters. But we we know what that tells us is that Acts was written by Luke, and what it is, fundamentally, it's a follow-up. It's a sequel to what he started teaching us about Jesus in Luke. So this is the second book. It's the the next thing that needs to be discussed. We saw in the first book, verse one again, I dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up. So Luke focuses on Jesus's early life, his birth, his young adulthood. We we see more of Jesus as a child in Luke than any other gospel account. He gives us details about that. And then he focuses primarily on the three years of Jesus's public ministry, where he's teaching, he's performing miracles, and ultimately goes to Jerusalem to be crucified and raised from the dead. And all of that is Luke. So what's Acts? Acts is the follow-up. Acts is the book that shows us what Jesus did and continued to do after his resurrection. And and that's really what the book of Acts shows us. The reason it's called Acts, it's actually called The Acts of the Apostles. That's the full title as we as we see it today. The I don't believe the titles of the books of the Bible are the inspired word of God. I think we put these titles in to help ourselves understand either who it was written to like in the case of Corinthians it was written to the Corinthians right so we we're not making up like crazy stuff here but most of the books of the bible are either named for who wrote it or who it was written to and acts is different acts is a title that's like well what basically trying to summarize what this book is about and so they're calling it the acts of the apostles but really i think it's actually a better title to say that the book of Acts is, the, is the, the acts of Jesus Christ through the apostles by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's really what the book of Acts is. It's what Jesus does through his apostles by the power of the Holy Spirit. But because I'm not going to say that every week, we're going to call it Acts, okay? <laughs> that's, that's just how it needs to be. We're going to call it Acts, so I don't have to say all that every time. Um, but that's what this is. Acts covers uh, a, a period of time for, of about 30 years. So from start to finish, 30 years is what Acts covers. It, it covers roughly the years eighty thirty three through 64. And as we're going to see through the months that, that go ahead of us, there's a lot that God does in 30 years. A lot. And it's amazing. It's, all, it's actually pretty astonishing what God accomplishes in such a short period period of time and there's a there's an author named Michael Green who wrote a book called 30 years that changed the world and he points this out to us he he says this three crucial decades in world history that's all it took in the years between 8033 and 64 a new movement was born in those 30 years it got sufficient growth and credibility to become the largest religion the world has ever seen and to change the lives of hundreds of millions of people. It has spread into every corner of the globe and has more than two billion adherents. It has had an indelible impact on civilization, on culture, on education, on medicine, on freedom, and of course, on the lives of countless people worldwide. And the seedbed for all of this, the time when it took decisive root, was in these three decades. And it all began with a dozen men and a handful of women. And then the Spirit came. And I think that's a great summary of what Acts is. It's showing us the history that we are still a part of, of God's movement in the world to make Jesus known and to change lives. And it starts in Acts chapter 1. And it goes through Acts 28. But we're going to see, just as a little spoiler here, Acts 28 has a complete abrupt ending. There's no conclusion to the book of Acts. You know why? Because it keeps going. And it's continued to go for thousands of years. And the church continues to press forward with the gospel of Jesus, continuing to be uh, doing what Jesus has called us to do through the power of the Spirit. And so this story is our story. This is the the part of our story that happened way before we were alive. But we are part of this story and and we get to have uh, an an ongoing work through Christ by his spirit uh, in this way. So so I want us to see Acts in that light. This is not just a book of history. It's not just some dusty old thing that happened so long ago it has no relevance anymore. It is actually uh, our history and and it is not done, it is continuing. So we get to see how God worked in the first 30 years, the first three decades of his apostles' lives. But we get to also see how this leads us and guides us in our, in our day as well. Okay, so with that said, I think we've got enough intro behind us here. Let's, let's just quickly talk about the first five verses, which I read here. And then, then we're really gonna focus on Uh, Verse six through eleven, but chapter one, verse one to five, as I've already read, is really the bridge between Luke's gospel account, the the book of Luke, and the book of Acts. He's kind of bridging this these two things and showing us uh, that the first book focused on what Jesus began to do and teach. The implication is, if Jesus began to do that, he's still doing things. He's still teaching and he's still working, and so. Luke Luke tells us what he began to do and teach. Now he's still at work, but he was taken up. And and we're going to see how that goes in the second half of this passage. Um, But Luke basically just explains simply that Jesus, after his resurrection, appeared bodily, physically to his disciples through many different situations over the course of 40 days. Jesus's ministry post-resurrection, so he's crucified, he's raised on the third day. After his raise, uh, being raised, he continues ministry on earth for 40 more days, mostly appearing to his disciples uh, and teaching them and finishing up the last bits of information they need before returning to heaven. And so he's telling them uh, what, he's gonna, what they're to do. He's telling them what, what uh, he's gonna do. And verse 4 and 5 tells us, is kind of the, the ultimate bridge here. He says, while staying with them, Jesus ordered them, the, these disciples, not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he had said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So Jesus says, guys, stay here. The Father's going to give you what he's promised to give you, which is his Holy Spirit. And when that happens, we're off to the races. Okay, and so we'll, we'll get there in time. But let's take a look at verse 6. It says, so when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? All right, so what are the, what are the apostles then, the, the disciples of Jesus, asking? They, Jesus is with them now, he, and they ask a question. Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? That's their question. And here's what's happening. Here, here's why they're asking that. Um, the, the Jewish belief in uh, Jesus' time in particular was that the Messiah, the anointed one of God, who was going to come and and redeem Israel. In their minds, this redemption was going to be a military operation that destroys their their enemies. And in this case, it's the Roman empire that had taken over Israel and that he would conquer their enemies and and the the, um, Messiah would be established on the throne as the king. This was the expectation. This was everyone's expectation. And Jesus comes into the world and blows up the expectation. Why? Because he's poor. He's uh, born in, in absolute poverty. He does this itinerant preaching ministry where he's just kind of going around to little villages most of the time. Jesus spends most of his time in obscurity, it, not in this big public thing. Now, of course, the crowds do start to come eventually, but, and the miracles are happening, and all that's true, But for the most part, Jesus's life was one of obscurity. And then to top it all off, he gets crucified, which is the worst way to be killed, the most shameful way to be killed in that time. And that just blows up everybody's expectations. So they're going, wait a minute, I thought the Messiah was supposed to be this conquering king. Instead, Jesus, who his disciples believed rightly was the Messiah, was not this conquering king, at least in his first coming right he was he was a suffering servant as isaiah does teach us right it shouldn't have been a total surprise but for some reason they didn't interpret isaiah in that through that lens and so here you have this expectation that the messiah is going to just become this amazing conquering king so this question will you now is it time now basically for you to restore the kingdom to israel What they're asking is, okay, Jesus, we we get that we missed the point at first. You know, you had to be crucified. You had to die for our sins. We get that now. So is it now time for you to destroy the Romans? Are, Are we ready to do this now? That's what they're asking. And here's what Jesus says, and I love it, because Jesus does this to them every time, every time. He says, it's not for you to know. Times or seasons that the Father is fixed by his own authority. He says, it's not your business, you guys. None of your business. None of your concern. And I love it because Jesus just perpetually frustrates these dudes. I mean, all the time. They ask a question and he's like, nope, wrong question. I'm not going to answer that. Or here's what you should have asked. I'm going to answer this question instead. Uh, Jesus is again, blowing up their expectations. And so their question is, is it time for you to establish your kingdom? Are you going to take over the the world as you should rightly do. And they, this is the thing, they're not wrong. They're just, their timing is misplaced. We know Jesus will return and he will establish his kingdom on the earth. We know that, but that happens in his second coming, not his first coming. And so that's why Jesus says, here's the thing, you guys, it's not your concern about the times or the seasons that the Father, God the Father, has fixed or determined by his own authority. This is not your concern. I think there's a lot of us who, of course, want Jesus to come back, right? We all, we all do. We want Jesus to come back. That's the hope of all of our lives. And, and yet it is kind of pointless for us to spend all of our time fretting about this. We need to let Jesus do what Jesus is going to do. The Father has fixed it by his own authority when Christ will come and establish his kingdom. And he will do that. We just don't know when that's going to be, nor should we let that dominate our lives. Here's what we should do. Jesus continues speaking in verse 8. What he tells his disciples, he also tells us. Verse 8. But, so it's not yours to know this, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Jesus' answer to their question is is this, it's not your business to know when I'm going to establish my kingdom, but here is your business. You are going to be my witnesses you are going to be here to continue telling people about me. The mission of Jesus is finished in the, the salvation that he offers us is finished and completed at his death and resurrection. We believe in the finished work of Christ. There's no more work yet to be done. We don't have to earn our way to God. We don't have to check the boxes. We just trust in the finished work of Christ. And yet the, the, the message of Jesus is not finished. His mission is completed in the sense of his, uh, his redemptive work. But the message that he has for the world is, is still uh, ongoing. And he tells his first disciples that there is going to be a point in which they receive the Holy Spirit who will empower them for this mission. And that the mission to make Jesus' message known is to go into the world, starting in Jerusalem where they are. That's why he said stay in Jerusalem. And then it's going to go out from there. Think of concentric circles like a dartboard, just kind of everything spreading out, right? Jerusalem and then Judea, Samaria to the end of the earth. That's the outward movement of the gospel that Jesus sends his disciples on. And so let's talk about this for a, a minute here, um, probably more than a minute, let's be honest. Um, let's, let's talk about this for a bit. Um, Jesus is saying that the completed work of Christ has to be expressed and explained to people in order for them to get in on this salvation. And so that's, that's what he's sending his disciples into the world to do, to take the, the message of Christ, that salvation is found in him and him alone, and they should take that to the whole world. So he gives them both what they're to say, which is, he says, you will be my witnesses, my witnesses. So what they are to talk about and tell people about is Jesus. That's what their job is. It is to be his witnesses. Not just to go and ramble on about whatever they think is important. Not to just try to make converts to some new religion. It is to make Jesus and what he's done known so that they can believe and be saved. And the way to accomplish this, Jesus gives them the the template. It is Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the end of the earth. So let's think about those those four categories for a minute. Jerusalem. Think about this. Think about these guys in their time where they are. They're in Jerusalem. They're still there 40 days after Jesus was crucified and risen. But this is the city where Jesus was crucified 40 days before this. 40 days, not 40 years, not 40 months. This is... Like really recent that Jesus had been completely just physically demolished and crucified in front of everyone's eyes. And guess what? The leaders who crucified him are all still there. Caiaphas hasn't retired. Pontius Pilate hasn't been transferred to Turkey or whatever, right? These guys are still in power they're still in charge. These are the guys who killed Jesus. And Jesus is like, you know what, you're going to start talking to them about me. <laughs> That's terrifying if you think about it. Because they're all going to go, but what if, he, what if they crucify us too? Spoiler alert, they do in some cases. <laughs> but here's the thing, you will receive power. You'll have, you won't be alone. Jesus promises them in the book of Matthew, Matthew accounts for this, where he says, behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Jesus is not leaving them alone. He's empowering them through the Holy Spirit, but he's calling them to reach Jerusalem first. And then Judea. Judea was a region within Israel. It was the area where Jesus spent most of his life in ministry. Galilee was in Judea and and most of the villages in which Jesus preached and performed miracles was in that area. And it's not in the city center of Jerusalem. It's kind of the countryside and the, and, and the rural areas. And Jesus says, you're going to go out there. But out there is where Jesus had already been firmly rejected by the people. Like, yeah, some believed in him, but most didn't. And so they've got to go back now empowered by the Spirit to make Jesus known in Judea. Then they're called to go to Samaria. Samaria is another place within it, the borderlands of Israel, but it's basically a whole independent nation. Um, it is a, it's an area where we're told in John chapter 4, the Jews were not to have any dealings with Samaritans. And the reason for that was several, there were, there's a, it's a nuanced issue. Uh, there was some racism involved because the Jewish people Uh, Disdained the Samaritans because they weren't full-blooded Jewish Israelites. They were um, they were the products of intermarriage, and so there was there was issues there, right? They were like, yeah, those people are just not not people we want to hang with, and and then there was religious reasons as well. The Samaritans had rejected the scriptures as at least the whole scriptures. They only embraced the first five books of Moses. And so there was religious confliction there too. They also had their own temple and they worshiped God on a different place than Jerusalem. So there was all kinds of issues. And then on top of that, this is also, I think this is mentioned in Joshua, uh, where the Samaritans were like embracing the, the fugitives of justice from Judea. So if you committed a crime in Judea, you could run to Samaria and they'd accept you. And so probably not the safest neighborhood to hang in, right? If that's, if that's the case. And so here's all these reasons to not want to go to Samaria. Jesus goes to Samaria in his ministry. John 4 records that. And then he says, you guys are going to do that too. You're going to go there. Probably all of this is like, oh boy, this is, <laughs> this is a lot. And then the cherry on top is the ends of the earth which is the Gentiles, non-Jews. And and talking to these Jewish men who had no category whatsoever for the Gentiles being welcomed in to the relationship they would have with Jesus, Jesus says, they get it too, and we're going to go there. And so that is actually, the way Jesus articulates this uh, in verse 8 is actually the structure of the book of Acts. The first eight chapters of Acts focus on these first three areas. They're in Jerusalem, then they go to Judea, and then Philip, Philip draws the short straw and gets to go to Samaria. Okay, and that's chapter eight. And they all, they, the gospel starts to go into all these places. And then chapter nine comes along, and we meet this guy who we're all familiar with named Paul. He was Saul then, but he becomes Paul. And then we're off to the races to get the nations Really cool how all that works in this. But that's the mission, right? To make, to be Jesus's witnesses in all these places and just keep going out. Wherever there are people, they need to hear this message. All right, we got a few more verses to look at and then we will wrap it up for this this morning. Verse nine through 11, it says, and when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up So Jesus is here now, ascended into heaven. This cloud takes him up out of their sight, right in front of their eyes. He's brought up into heaven. The cloud, um, we some commentators believe, was referring to the Shekinah glory, this Old Testament concept of God being kind of presented in this cloud, uh, or or uh, that's the best kind of word to describe it, I guess. That there's this glory around him, and it's the same perhaps the same glory of God that was with the people of Israel in the wilderness. As they traveled, it was a cloud uh, of fire at night or a pillar of fire at night and a pillar of cloud by day to lead the people. Uh, Jesus was transfigured into his glory in front of his disciples while before his crucifixion. And there was there was definitely uh, glory and, and like this kind of stuff was happening, and perhaps that's what's going on. But whatever. It's the point, the real point is, is that Jesus is going up into heaven. And he does it before their eyes. And they're all just like staring, kind of dumbfounded, into the sky. And these two men, which we, we would assume would be angels because of how they're described as men in white robes, who just like show up out of nowhere. So they're they're angels, right? They're, they're there to announce this to them, and they, they say, uh, guys, what are you doing staring at the sky? <laughs> Jesus just told you to get to work, get to work. And so they say, he's in heaven, and he'll come back when it's ready, when he's ready to do so. This is, this is interesting, because the, the ascension, I think, is something that we, in our modern Christian mentality, don't, don't really think a lot about, Like, we understand that it happened, like Jesus left and he's in heaven, but why does that matter? I don't know that we think much about this. There was a time when Christians did think more about this, though, and Spurgeon explains it in one way, and then I'm going to quote somebody else, too, but Charles Spurgeon was a pastor in London in the 1800s, and here's what he said on this. He says, there's four great events that shine out brightly in the Savior's story. All Christian minds delight to dwell on his birth which we do at Christmas time, right? His res- his death, the cross, his resurrection, Easter, right? And then he says and his ascension. And I stopped there and I was like, I don't know that I necessarily delight in that. Maybe I need to, right? But he goes on to say this. These make four rungs in a ladder that that uh, the foot of which is on earth and the top reaches to heaven. As for his ascension, he could not a second time descend if he had not first ascended. But having perfumed heaven with his presence and prepared a place for his people, we may rightly expect that he will come again and receive us to himself, that where he is, we may be also. So from Spurgeon's vantage point, the, the, the ascension should bring us joy because it reminds us and points to the, re, the future coming of Christ. If he hadn't ascended, he won't descend again for us. I think there's another pastoral and practical and, and uh, applicable thing that the ascension teaches us. And this I gleaned from a guy who's long, long been dead. He's, he's a Puritan named Thomas Goodwin. And he lived in the 1600s. And here's what he says, and I'm sort of para- semi-paraphrasing, semi-quoting, because like, if you've ever read the Puritans, it's insane to try to like actually make sense of what they're saying. So I'm trying to package it in a way that makes sense. But here's what he says, essentially. The ascension of Jesus should absolutely convince us that Jesus has given God the Father full satisfaction. That Christ, who undertook to satisfy for sin, right, through his death, and to procure a perfect righteousness for us, has perfectly performed it. And that it is a righteousness that God's justice accepts to save sinners. By the fact that Jesus, after his death and finishing this work, ascends to the Father into heaven and stays there on the throne. Whereas if Christ had not fulfilled all righteousness and perfectly satisfied the Father, you may be sure that there would be no going to heaven for him nor remaining there. The Father would have sent him back down to finish the rest. Goodwin's point is this, the fact that Jesus is in heaven today, ascended there 2,000 years ago, and is seated on the throne at the right hand of God demonstrates for us beyond a shadow of a doubt that Christ has finished the work of salvation for us. If he hadn't, he would still be here trying to figure it out. But he's on the throne. He's finished the job. He, sit, he sat down. And in the Old Testament mentality, the priests never sat down while they were working because the work isn't done, right? And they, so they're standing. Christ sits down in heaven because the work is finished. And that means that you and I have absolute assurance that our sins are forgiven. If we've trusted in Christ, that we have a whole new relationship with God through Jesus. The work of Christ in ascending into heaven should give us confidence, not only of the power that he will give us to make his name known and his And his word known, but also in the fact that we can rest assured that our salvation is finished and we can rest in that by grace. So, as we continue through the book over the next weeks and months, uh, we're gonna see how the early followers of Jesus began to work this work of fulfilling the mission that Jesus gave them to make disciples. I think going through this book is gonna be really good for us. I think the, the last, not just Springbrook Church, but the whole church in the Western world especially has taken a lot of hits in recent years. We've, we've gone through a lot as a culture and a time, and I think we've, we've seen things that are difficult to know what to do with, or we've become distracted, or we've become divisive, and, and I think that because of those things, it's like playing whack-a-mole, right? We're, we're so distracted by things that we're not focused on the mission that God has given us, what he's called us to do in carrying forward the mission. And Springbrook Church exists to do this. This is why we're here. We are one church in two locations to make Jesus known in Langlade County and beyond. And I think that In some ways, we've allowed ourselves to be distracted and get off mission. And it's time for us to get back. And and we're going to see through this book some of the ways we can approach that and go, go forward with that. We are empowered by the same spirit that the early church was empowered with. And God calls us right here, right now, where we are, to share the good news and the hope of Christ. And we can have confidence in that because Jesus is seated on the throne and he is interceding for us and he's empowering us by his spirit for this task. But it is our task. It is our task to carry out. And we should not be content to just sit idly by while people are lost and wandering from the Lord Jesus. We are called to be his witnesses. And Acts is going to point the way forward for us to do that. So we're going to, it's going to be a while before we get through it all, but we're going to, we need to see this is, is our call too, that Jesus is in heaven. He's, a, he's finished the work of salvation, but the mission to make him known is still ongoing. And we have the baton. It's our generation's turn to do this. And we will pass that baton on when we die to someone else. And Jesus will continue to go until He comes, comes back for us. So let's let's get at it. Let's get at it. That's what we're called to do. Stop staring up at the sky. Let's get to work. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for your amazing work of salvation that has been accomplished for us. Apart from any work we've done, uh, apart from anything that we can ever do or, or dream to do, you have saved us from our sins. Uh, because you lived a perfect life in our place and died our death and rose again to conquer death for us. And we, we pray that now that you are seated on the throne, that you are in heaven, that you are, uh, that you finished that work, that, that we get to continue this, this mission of making you known. Would you help us to do that, God? Would you open the doors? Would you make a, a way for us to share your good news with those who are lost, And would you draw us closer to you through this? And we pray that as we move forward in the book of Acts that you will continue to speak to our hearts in these things. And we ask it in Jesus' name, amen.